Okay. We're doing now Sunday of the portion of Mishpatim. So last week's portion, Yisro, was basically all surrounding one enormous, enormous event, the giving of the Torah. Parshas Mishpatim gives us over many, many laws, as Mishpatim means. Mishpatim means civil laws. So these are, of course, not civil laws. These are godly laws. So what do we mean in that context? Mishpatim means commandments that are understandable and rational to the human mind. And right after the giving of the Torah, what we're given over is all these commandments that are very rational, but we're doing them not because our reason dictates, but because God says. And we have to approach every mishpat, every rational commandment, as if it's irrational, as if the only reason I'm doing the only reason I keep kosher is because God says, the only reason I don't eat mixed milk and meat is because God says, the only reason I don't uh, eat on Yom Kippur is because God says, and the only reason I don't steal is because God says. On a deeper level, the reason why these areas of behavior are rational to us is because Torah is truly the blueprint of the world, and therefore the thinking of Torah has become embedded in our psyche, and that's why these, these matters are rational to us. So the first verse opens up, and these are the mishpatim, these rational commandments that you shall place before them. So Rashi says, and these are the mishpatim, these, the verse begins, and these. These negate, this is a general rule, negates that which was said previously, and these adds, amplifies what was said previously. Meaning, if the verse had opened up, these are the mishpatim, it would imply that this portion has no connection to the previous portion. That's what we mean by rejecting what came before. It's separating itself off. But since the verse says, and these are the mishpatim, and these means all of these mishpatim, all of these rational commandments, are amplifying, are an extension of what came before. Well, what came before? Well, the previous portion was the Ten Commandments, was the giving of the Torah. So just as the Ten Commandments were given by God on Mount Sinai, also all of these, all of these laws we're going to read here were stated on Mount Sinai. Now, why is this specifically juxtaposed to the preceding passage? Meaning at the very end of the previous portion of Yisro, it discusses the altar, a few laws about the altar. So why are Mishpatim specifically linked to the altar? I mean, we understand now why they're linked to the giving of the Torah, because God said them on Mount Sinai. But why are they linked specifically to those last laws in the portion of Israel concerning the altar? To teach you that the rabbinical grand court called the Sanhedrin, which judiciates all of the laws, has to be adjacent to the altar, meaning adjacent to the temple, and truly, the grand court met in a place part of the temple structure, not literally in the temple, but in the area of the courtyard where non-priests are permitted to enter. Next, Rashi. And these are the judgments, the mishpatim, the civil law that you shall place before them. What does it mean you shall place before them? So God said to Moses, don't just 
teach the law until they don't just keep saying it until they memorize it, say the law one time, two times, three times, they memorize it, then you move on. No. Make them understand it. Give them all the reasons. Give them all the explanations. That's what it means placed before them like a table that's set and prepared. It's everything set out before you. You just have to, you know, reach over and take your fork that they put before you and take the food that they put before you. They laid it out for you. That's how you have to lay out the law so it's understandable and therefore easily digestible to the human mind. And these are the laws, mishpatim, that you shall place before them. Before them, Rashi says, is to exclude and not before non-Jews, meaning even if you know in a certain matter of law that the non-Jews judge it exactly the same way the Jews do, you're still not allowed to go to their court because bringing your legal matters into the non-Jewish courts is desecrating God's name and giving esteem to the idolater's name because you're giving importance to it. So if we let our, our enemies judge us, we're giving testimony to the superiority of their deity. So sometimes this becomes very practical and, and inconvenient because, well, you're in America, and if you take the guy to civil court, the civil court will enforce the rules, and if you take him to a rabbinical court, you know, what clout do you have? So these things are not always so simple. But the general rule, the overarching rule is we don't want to take another Jew to a secular court, even in this very extreme example Rashi is giving, when the secular court, so to speak, judges the matter exactly the way the Jewish court does. Okay, that was the introductory sentence to the entire portion. Now we're going to start with the law. So um, uh, a general point here. The Rashis in this portion are very long and complicated. I happen to enjoy them. They, they have to think through them to understand them. And basically, very often, the style we're going to see in these Rashis are Rashi says a question. Hmm, does this mean this or does this mean this? Well, then he brings another quote from somewhere else. And then if you put the quote from there together and the quote here together, you come out with the actual law. And you might think, God, you could have done it so much simpler. You could have saved me this whole long, complicated Rashi. You could have just written the verse clearly in this place and not make leave room for ambiguity that I have to clarify from another place. But obviously, every word of Torah has myriads of levels of meaning far deeper than our human mind can grasp. And every letter of Torah we call God's name. So what's embedded here are depths beyond depth. And therefore, it could come out on my conscious mind as a little ambiguous, and that's why I need a long Rashi. So the verse says, When you will buy a Hebrew slave, you shall work for six years, and in the seventh year you shall go to freedom without charge for free. The Rashi says, now the verse said when you'll buy a Hebrew slave. So I have a question here, Rashi says. Does this mean a slave who's a Jew? Is a Hebrew slave meaning a Jewish slave? Or does it mean the slave of a Jew? Meaning a Jew owns a slave, a Canaanite slave, and you bought that slave from the Jew. So what is it talking about? Is it talking about a Jew that's a slave who works you for six years and the seventh year goes free? Or is it talking about a Canaanite slave who is owned by a Jew, you buy him from a Jew, a Hebrew slave, a slave owned by a Jew, and he works you for six years in the seventh year to go free. So that doesn't seem to make sense because there's another verse that says that the non-Jewish slaves that you own, you own forever, I mean you inherit them to your children. You never let them go free. But maybe I could say, you know, there's a discrimination here. If I buy a non-Jewish slave from a Jew, 
I'm buying him for six years, and he goes three in the seventh. If I'm buying a non-Jewish slave from non-Jews, I own him forever. So I'm back to my original question. Is this a Jew who's, selling, who's being sold as a slave? Or is this a non-Jew who is owned by a Jew, and I'm buying him? And therefore, he also has this exclusion of only working six years, and the seventh he goes free. So Raji says, no, because we can look at another verse. And another verse says, when your brother, the Hebrew man or Hebrew woman, be sold to you, he shall serve you for six years. So there it says clearly when your brother, but since it's saying your brother, brother only means a Jew. So therefore I'm learning that these verses here discussing the Hebrew slave doesn't mean a non-Jewish slave owned by a Jew, but means literally a Jew being sold as a slave. And for if you buy a Jew as a slave, he works as a slave for six years, and after the sixth year, and the seventh year, he goes free. Now, as when you will buy, Rashi explains that this situation here is, there are two situations where one buys a Jew, Ishman, as a slave. But one of those situations is for a person who stole, he was caught for his thievery, and when you steal, you have to pay back double. But he doesn't have the money to pay it back. So he's sold as a slave. And that money from the sale is, goes to cover his theft. So that's one option of why a Jew would be sold as a slave. The other option of why a Jew would be sold as a slave is about a person who's very, very poor. And he has such enormous poverty that he sells himself as a slave to earn some money. So which are we talking about here? Are we talking about the one who's sold from the courts because of his theft? Or are we talking about the person who sells himself because of his poverty? So, so it says in another place, very clearly when your brother will be poverty-stricken and be sold to you, so that obviously in that situation, it's talking about someone who's selling himself because of poverty. So what's it talking about here when it says when you'll buy this Jewish slave? It must be someone sold by the court. So therefore, in our verses here, in this Torah portion, all of the things we're discussing here about this Jewish slave is a man who stole, cannot pay back for his theft, and therefore the court, the rabbinical court, sells him as a slave. So that money from the sale is 